Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. State and federal rules of procedure, as well as the individual court rules, often place obligation on the parties and their attorneys to meet and confer about discovery matters. Federal Rule 26F, for example, requires a conference to map out a discovery plan at the beginning of a case, while Rule 26C requires that motions for protective orders must include a certification that the movement has in good faith conferred or attempted to confer with other affected parties in an effort to resolve those discovery disputes without court action. Those obligations assume that rationality and compromise will have their day, but too often, meet-and-confer sessions turn into nothing more than a waste of time due to one side or the other's posturing and attempts to use the session to better position the argument once the issue inevitably goes before the court. So what can be done about this and what strategies should litigators implement to protect their clients? To answer these questions, I'm happy to welcome Rob Shapiro to the show. Rob is a trial lawyer and litigator at Barack Farazano Kirschbaum and Nagelberg LLP in Chicago. He has more than 40 years of experience handling commercial and other disputes in trial and appellate courts, ADR forums, and governmental proceedings nationwide and abroad. For the last 30 years, Rob has been the associate editor of Litigation, the journal of the ABA litigation section, and has authored the award-winning quarterly column Advance Sheet since 2000. He is the most published author in the journal's history. He wears other hats as well, of course, uh, as an adjunct professor of philosophy, a commentator on local television, host of a weekly radio show on classical music, and as a color commentator on radio broadcasts of the games of a Class A baseball team. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. Well, Rob, let's talk about meeting and confer sessions, something that every litigator um, is involved with at, at one time or, or another. The court's attorneys and parties involved in these sessions come from seemingly different perspectives and may have conflicting goals. So let's go through some of those uh, perspectives and goals. So let's start off with kind of the, the court. What, what is a judge looking for typically in these meeting and confer sessions and why do they impose these requirements? Well, there's both a practical reason and a theoretical reason. So the practical reason, obviously, is to take a burden off the court. The court doesn't want to have to go through every dispute, mediate every dispute, and decide every dispute between the parties. Uh, and so it's hopeful that the parties will work it out, as they are constantly say. They're constantly giving the parties these instructions. Sometimes the parties bring something to court after having had the sessions, and the court says, you know what, I still think you can work it out. Go back and work it out. And so they have a very practical reason for doing this. Otherwise, their dockets are going to be completely overloaded. And even in the federal system where you have magistrate judges, the magistrate judges can't handle every dispute that arises between counsel. Now, there's a theoretical reason that I think lies behind this. And this is often not appreciated, I think, as well by uh, litigators and even by the courts as it should be. 
And that is that, you know, a litigator has a three-part division of responsibilities, as it were. The first and most important responsibility, which is what I think the court is looking to, is that a litigator is obligated to uphold the legal system. You know, uh, we often mention the fact that we're officers of the court, but that's not often taken as seriously as it might be by practitioners, but it is taken seriously by the courts. Our obligation as lawyers, uh, as uh, litigators, as trial lawyers, is to do what we can to make the legal system work and work well. And the meet and confer process is definitely part of that. Uh, And uh, it's, I think, what lies behind what is, as I said, something that starts as a practical uh, matter, but really does have an important theoretical role to play for the courts. Uh, I think that, and I don't want to jump ahead, but I think that part of the problem with litigators is that they're never thinking about that obligation. In fact, that obligation is often sort of treated lightly or even made fun of from time to time. But it's a very, very serious obligation that the that litigators have. Sure, and you know, one of kind of my favorite things to do um, for meeting confer sessions is. or, or for discovery disputes is that a lot of times courts, you know, in, in Chicago, we, we practice in Chicago, the, the local court or court rules have a obligation to have a personal consultation in these meeting confer sessions. So they don't, courts are not allowing these email battles or letter battles. They want people to have a telephone conversation or a meeting in person. And then oftentimes, you know, if, if people don't, comply with that, you can file a motion to strike because strike, you know, a discovery motion due to the fact that they didn't, you know, try to have a personal consultation with you. Um, So it's interesting that courts actually want that personal consultation as opposed to just a letter writing campaign because they think or should should be that attorneys can work things out if they just get on the phone and talk to one another. Well, you know, there's a, a sense to this because uh, and and by the way, it got suppressed somewhat during the pandemic because it was so much more difficult for people to meet in person. But I've had numerous experiences during my career where I was tempted to leave, uh, send an email or even just have a phone conversation with the other side where I found that a uh, an actual personal appearance was something that really broke through all of the uh, all of the stuff that was interfering with the resolution. I actually had this in a settlement context at one point where I was uh, arguing about a settlement with a guy. Uh, I was in Chicago. He was in New York. My client said to me, get on a plane and go. And I said, we're going to have a 20-minute conversation. He said, get on a plane and go. And it did make all the difference in the world. And in the meet and confer context, I really do think people are constantly positioning for reasons we can talk about. And that sometimes when they're sitting face-to-face, that positioning is a little bit harder to do because, among other things, it doesn't pass the red face test. It's also a good instinct generally because my experience is the courts don't want to read these letters and most of the time don't. Uh, so that you you think you may have gotten the upper hand or you may have been able to accomplish this in the course of the letters, but it's going to be all lost when it actually comes before the court if it does, if you're unable to uh, to resolve the dispute. Sure. And so let's let's turn to individual litigators what are we trying to accomplish in a meet and confer session? And, and I'm sure it depends on, you know, individual attorneys and, you know, what your case looks like and your strengths and weaknesses of your case. But typically, what, what are we trying to do in these meet and confer sessions? 
Well, I think this comes from the second responsibility lawyers have. Um, the second responsibilities lawyers have is to represent their clients zealously within the bounds of the law. Within the bounds of the law is a reference back to that first principle, that foundation principle that you're an officer of the court. And the law doesn't just mean what the law says, but also what the legal system requires. Um, but uh, litigators tend to be more focused on representing their clients zealously. So the question is, how do they get the maximum they can out of the meet and confer session, even though they're supposed to compromise and they're supposed to work together? So uh, there's a, a tension there uh, because on the one hand, they're trying to make the thing work smoothly. But on the other hand, they're trying to represent their client as zealously as possible. Now, this is not an unusual kind of let's say, paradox. Most litigators face this in a variety of different circumstances, but it's particularly acute in the meet and confer session because you go in with the suggestion that you're going to find a compromise, but at the same time, you want to get a compromise that's closer to your client's position than the other guy's position uh, or gal. And um, this is, you know, creates a kind of tension, as I said, within, with, within the undertaking because you want to always appear as if you're carrying out the court's uh, scruples that uh, that the parties will agree or reach an agreement in good faith. On the other hand, you want to make certain that you do the best you can for your client. Well, and it seems to me perhaps the hardest thing for a young lawyer specifically, but I think lawyers generally, is to figure out in terms of discovery disputes, what is ultimately really important because you could do all sorts of discovery and get every email and all that kind of stuff. And you really have to determine, I think, going into a meet and confer session, what is it that I absolutely need to prove my case? What is, you know, nice? What is, you know, semi-relevant? And then I think you can kind of make a decision as to what, what you're really going to push on in the meet and confer session as opposed to, you know, kind of compromise and let go. But I think all of us have a tendency to want everything. And I think, you know, compromise. In order to compromise, you need to figure out, you know, what's really important and what's not. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, the, the biggest mistake I think litigators make in all walks of life is not to keep their eyes on the ball. So there's a tendency among litigators, uh, myself included, to be, you know, somewhat somewhat spirited and, and, and want to uh, succeed, let's say, even win. And so when you go into a, any kind of situation, and it's particularly true in meet and confer, you, you, you want to win because that's what we're uh, trained to do. And I think that the problem is that too frequently in all situations and in meet and confer situations in particular, litigators tend to forget what it is they're trying to achieve. And uh, as you know, Dave, I often, often talk about litigating backwards. So what's the end result that you really want? What is really important to your case? That's what you should first be focused on. Another way of doing this is to say, okay, I'm going to go into the meet and confer session. If everything goes as well as I would hope, reasonably hope, not what I would want for, uh, you know, under pie in the sky kind of, kind of standards, but what I reasonably hope for, uh, what would I then report to the client I did, I got? 
right? That's a good way of testing. Do you know what you want out of this session? And sure, most clients want to hear that you want everything, but what do you want to be able to say to the client of, look, I had to do some compromise, but the most important thing for us is this, and that's what I got um, in the course of the proceeding. So you do that before you go into the meet and confer session so that you know what your ultimate goal is. And you've got to think very, very carefully about what that goal is. I'll tell you, if I, if I may, just give you one uh, anecdote. Many, many years ago, I was involved in a discovery dispute. And uh, the, the <laughs> big surprise there. And, uh, you know, the other side was absolutely adamant about a series of things. And I realized that their very aggressiveness and whatever was causing them to neglect what was ultimately the goal in the litigation, not just in the discovery process. They didn't see how what they were doing in the discovery process was causing a problem for them in the litigation of their case more generally. It's very interesting. It was slowing down the case. It was bogging down the case. And they didn't seem to notice. So, uh, you know, they came in very aggressively, which allowed me to be aggressive back. And the result was that um, it had a negative impact on their case generally because they weren't really focused on what were they really trying to accomplish. And I believe in all all aspects of litigation, you have to really think carefully about what you want the outcome to be, generally the strategic question, and then in each tactical decision that you make. What is it that you're trying to accomplish by this process? Now, nicely, that dovetails with the court's objective, right? Because if you're really clear on what it is you most need, that will allow you to compromise away those things you don't care about. Um, and therefore will move the ball a little bit towards a compromise with the other side. But there's still a gap, of course, because the other side may know what it is that you most want and not want to give it to you. So you have to figure out ways that you can, with what it is that you ultimately want to achieve in mind, you can reasonably accomplish in the course of the meet and confer session. Well, that makes sense. And you, you talked about um, you know, the, the need or the want for litigators to win. And I think all of that is set by client expectations. And I think, you know, clients often have different goals in litigation. Sometimes you have clients who are very sort of cost conscious, don't want you to do much. Some want you to be overly aggressive. How do you go about sort of setting the expectations for your client um, in terms of what you can achieve in discovery and what you should be able to achieve given, you know, the other kind of court obligations that you talked about earlier? Yeah, it's a matter of clarity with your client. You really have to sit down and explain to them how it is you're going about it, what your ultimate goal is, how you think this is going to add to the ultimate goal, all the thinking that you're doing about, okay, how am I going to win this case and how does each tactical moment lead towards that ultimate strategy? All of what you're doing, you need to condense and make uh, clear to your client. If they don't understand it, you're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of uh, of resistance from them. I once had a client. I kept trying to say, "Look, you know, it, what, you, you want me to be super aggressive, and I can be aggressive with this fellow, but I don't think it's going to do any good." I, 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 particular case I had, 
The guy on the other side was uh, from a very, very large, well-heeled law firm in New York. And he was a, basically a, you know, a brawler. And I said to the client, look, I don't think you want to brawl with this fellow. Here are the reasons why, whatever. And then I said, here's a better strategy, a kind of outwit the other guy's strategy. But I had a lot of trouble with the client who just had this idea. Uh, this was a foreign client and had a kind of an idea about how American litigation was supposed to go, which foreign clients are always pleased to tell you they understand, but really don't. Um, the, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I could not be successful with this client. Yet in another circumstance, I was, I was, I, this wasn't actually something I did, but I was privy to, that where, again, a foreign client um, was very upset with uh, uh, one of my colleagues who was a, a corporate lawyer and, you know, kept wondering why in negotiation uh, my colleague was giving up all of these things. Well, the colleague finally took them aside and said, let me explain what I'm doing here and said, here's what you want. There are all these other things, very much like the process I was describing earlier before for a litigator. There are a m- number of other things which might be nice to have, but what you really care about is uh, you know, this one thing that I have my eyes fixed on. And so, yes, I do give up things in the course of the litigation, but nothing that's ever important to you. Once the client was explained that, the client understood perfectly and actually became quite the fan of this corporate, corporate uh, M&A guy. And uh, it, it's a really good lesson to me because, you know, you, you, you got to make sure your client is on board with your strategy. Sometimes they have these preoccupations or assumptions about American litigation that uh, are not necessarily right. And you have to show them why your strategy is superior. But even under the best of circumstances, sometimes you cannot get your client there. And these days, there's such a premium put on, you know, being really, really aggressive and and whatever. And I just don't think you do your client a service unless you explain why, if you think that's the wrong strategy, uh, you, 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 you don't, you know, you, you explain why. That, by the way, leads to the third part of the three, what I call the three-part rubric. The most important thing as a, as a lawyer and as a litigator is you're an officer of the court. Secondly, you represent your client zealously within the bounds of the law. The third thing is you want the business, right? You want the business. And a lot of lawyers, I think, are afraid to tell their clients why it is their strategy is a flawed one. And the reason is they're afraid to lose the business. Well, it doesn't do you any good um, to try to hold on to the business by doing just what your client wants if you're going to end up messing up the case. So I always tell people if you have that third interest in mind, which should come third, then uh, you need to maybe think again about what it is that's going to really help the client and therefore help you in the end uh, retain the business. Well, and you talked about, you know, dealing with aggressive attorneys on the other side and whether you should respond aggressively and kind. I mean, I've been in many meet and confer sessions where tensions are high and, you know, attorneys get emotional and swear and are rude and all sorts of things. And there's been a lot, I think, in the in the press and a lot of, a lot of content coming up from bar associations about how there are bullying attorneys and that sort of thing. So could you give us some tips on how you would deal with a, you know, quote unquote bullying attorney, someone who is just, their emotions are completely out of control during the meet and confer session? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, this is a a, a constant problem. You know, it comes from a number of things. By the way, it's much worse in the civil litigation context than it is in the criminal litigation context. And the reason is that, Criminal lawyers, as I like to say, recognize each other across the table. 
you know, if they're a defense attorney, they were a prosecutor. They understand where a prosecutor is coming from. If they're a prosecutor, they want to be a defense attorney. They have a pretty good idea what that requires. And they tend to be a bit more civil to each other than the civil lawyers um, who are so large in number uh, and so spread out and have so many different uh, mentors that they tend to think that, you know, what they're doing today is going to have no impact on, on them in the future. They'll never see this lawyer again or whatever. It's a little bit more difficult. But the most important thing, uh, and I will say that we all have difficulty doing this, and I'm, I'm uh, probably as, uh, have as much difficulty as anybody, is you got to keep your own, your own emotions under control. That's really critical, right? Uh, you really have to you know, sometimes even sit there and take the abuse that you're getting without losing your own temper. Because the worst thing that can happen is to allow the thing to to get into some kind of yeah, screaming match or, you know, something that is is, is really, uh, you know, more of an, uh, just a outright argument than an, a, a meet and confer session. And don't be deluded by the idea that you're going to be able to show the judge on the, that the other side was impossible because that's extremely un, unlikely. It's very, very difficult to do because the court's reaction is, okay, I know about you guys. You're all fight together. So a pox on both your houses and and uh, go back and work it out, which unwittingly, I think the courts are helping the one who's belligerent by doing that, but it's the natural instinct and you can't avoid it. So you got to keep your own um, emotions under control. The second thing is uh, what we talked about just a moment ago. Keep your eyes on the ball. What is it that's really important? And try to constantly bring the conversation back to a focus on that issue. If you keep calm yourself and then you uh, constantly say, okay, can we go back to this issue? Uh, you know, if you get more abuse, you just stay calm and say, okay, can we go back to this issue? It's really, really, really critical. By the way, this happens in writing as well. People get very, very uppity and very belligerent in tone in their letters. It doesn't do any good. And sometimes people ought to think a little bit about when they get, um, you know, this long sort of argumentative letter from the other side to just write back and say, I, I disagree with almost everything you say, but could we address these three issues? <laughs> you know, in other words, not take the bait with respect to everything else. I think that's um, uh, the really critical thing. The third thing that you can do, of course, is ask for the court's assistance, uh, particularly particularly good in federal court where you have magistrate judges available to you, where you can say to the judge, I, I think we're having an enormous amount of difficulty. Try not to just blame the other side. We're having an enormous amount of difficulty, and it would be useful if you could loan us the magistrate judge for us to help kind of get this this done. You won't get yes on every occasion, but it it is a, um, uh, a technique you can use. And you can even ask the judge to appoint a special master if it's really necessary, uh, uh, somebody that you could designate who would be particularly adept at bringing the parties together. So those are just a couple of thoughts about it. Everybody has their own little toolkit of what works in these circumstances. Same kind of toolkit that you use in depositions when you get a lot of obnoxious objections and things of that sort. But, you know, you kind of work out these techniques that try to keep control of your own uh, feelings, and then also keep your eyes on the ball and then get the court's assistance if you really need it. Well, those are some really great tips. And I think we've talked a lot about problems with meeting confer sessions. So let's talk a little bit about uh, solutions or potential solutions to the problems that attorneys have with, with these sessions. What are some of those uh, potential solutions that you might posit for us to think about uh, going forward? 
it's interesting. You know, as I said, this is actually a, a microcosm of a much larger problem. That is um, the problem of civil litigators in particular being unable to work together towards the common goal. I think, you know, what's the old expression? Uh, you know, it, it, it takes everybody to, to work on this. Um, strangely, I think the place that you have to start with this, um, and this is not a, a very popular view, I think is with the law schools. Because I don't think law schools do a very good job of educating lawyers in that three-part rubric I mentioned, which is to say, teaching them why being an officer of the court is such a critical part of what they're going to do as lawyers. Oh, there's a lot of lip service played to it. It's always something that, you know, you hear in uh, in law school, but really teaching people what it means to be uh, an officer of the court, I think is a critical part of it. And the meet and confer session, as I said, has its theoretical origins in the notion that uh, we're all here to make the legal system work better. The second is, I think that the mentoring process within uh, law firms should somehow change. Now, this is hard to do because a lot of the older lawyers like me, right, um, you know, have been battling for years. And so the key question is how you teach the the young people to, you know, uh, succeed in these battles. Um, But somehow it has to be communicated to them. Some of the things that you and I have talked about, which is uh, how it is that you uh, are successful, notwithstanding that this is a kind of fraught circumstance, how you keep your eyes on the ball, how you really think about what it is that's necessary uh, to do, how you set aside your 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 you know heuristic the desire to be successful or to to win, uh, and really think about what's going to help you win. I think that's very important in the mentoring process. Uh, and needs to be emphasized, I think, to younger lawyers. And the third thing is I think the courts have a role to play. I'm sometimes very frustrated, as many people are, uh, with the way in which the courts respond to this. Because it's very, very difficult when you really do have a, a very difficult or obstreperous party on the other side to get the court's attention and to really bring to the court um, and get the court involved in the process. The magistrate judge uh, approach I mentioned is is one, but sometimes you don't have a magistrate judge uh, or you, you know, you're in a system where there is uh, that, that doesn't occur. And the question is how how uh, can you get the judge more involved and will the judge get more involved? I often invoke uh, the late Judge Shader, a wonderful judge who used to have the view, and I think he actually reads the rule collect- correctly, that under Rule 37, if there's a discovery dispute, somebody pays. It's a harsh rule, and sometimes he applied it rather harshly, but it had a very salutary effect in his courtroom. He would take the time to figure out who was the party that was causing the trouble by going through the merits of the motion that was in front of him uh, and then saying, okay, well, you won, so you get your fees back. And after a while, people took a very, uh, you know, compromising view of what they should do in the meet and confer process. At the other extreme, some courts have just abandoned the process in in anything but name only where they say, okay, you have to have a meet and confer, but if one side says we're not going to make any progress, the meet and confer then is no longer necessary. That can't happen. I think you have to continue to insist on the meet and confer process. And I think if the uh, courts will take a little bit of time to really try to understand if the process is broken down, who's responsible, uh, and perhaps use maybe a little bit less um, 
on a uh, on, on an absolute basis than Judge Shader did, but you know, use these uh, the uh, fees process to enforce this notion that people have to compromise. I think this would clear up pretty quickly. It's hard to do, and it's time out of the uh, the court's time to uh, to do what are should be more important things. But there's a little bit of that that I think that would add to the process. So the law school um, uh, education process, the mentoring process, and after a while, those two things will work very nicely in sync. Uh, and then finally, the court's taking a little bit more active role in the discovery process itself. All of those are, are great starting points on a solution. I wanted to talk to you about a couple of them, one being which sort of the, the court issue. Of course, I think if uh, court started you know, dramatically or, or tightened the grip in terms of enforcement of discovery violations and that sort of thing and, and, and really looked at who was at fault and started making attorney fee awards, I think people would definitely, you know, pick their heads up and, and start paying attention. My question for you, though, is, you know, we have a court system that is backed up because of COVID. You know, it was backed up to begin with, I think, even before that, where, uh, as you, I think you mentioned, judges don't always kind of pay attention to or don't want to hear these discovery disputes and end up just kind of, you know, splitting the baby anyway. How do you get the court's attention through your motion, what's the best way to kind of present the issue to let the court know, hey, this is not your typical garden variety discovery dispute. It's something real, actually important that you should pay attention to that's important to our case and that we really do need a ruling um, from you, you know, for this violation. Well, it's hard. I mean, I've had many situations where the party on the other side had acted egregiously. And I say that not just from my own perspective, but where the court eventually realized that the party was acting egregiously, but it would have been better if it had come much sooner. So it's very, very difficult to do this. Um, Part of it, interesting enough, I think goes back to that letter writing process. Uh, people like write these long letters refuting every uh, item that was in the previous letter. If you do that, the court is never going to read the letter and it's not going to tee up the matter in, a, in an intelligent way. Again, you have to figure out what's really important and write a very you know succinct letter, which might have that impact. That's one thing that you can do. Secondly, you know it, it, there, there are things you can do to tell the court you're serious about what's happening. So for example, if you have a discovery dispute, the other side's been really ver- difficult and you're confident that you have really made an effort to compromise, tell the judge that you want a special master and you'll agree that whoever the special master decides was in the right gets gets his or her fees. I mean, in other words, bet on yourself, okay? It's not, I want my fees. It's the special master can, at the end of this process, decide whether one or the other side uh, uh, was right or wrong. But I will say it's difficult. And there is a further difficulty, which is, I mentioned Judge Shader, who took a very, very diligent approach to this. But there's a tendency that courts have because they're very busy. And as you say, with respect to COVID, so backed up. It's so amazing. I have one motion to dismiss 
It's been pending for two years in a really wow. major case. And the judge just hasn't gotten around to handling the matter because the judge is very, very busy and jammed up. But in any event, the, you know, what you, you have the worry that if you, the court gets involved, the court will get involved without the kind of diligence that is necessary to really figure out who, who the troublemaker is. So that's a, fur, a, a further um, difficulty. Having said all of that, I think that, that you know, there, there's a process by which the courts can be made to understand that a little bit of, you know, a tough love here is going to go a long way, um, maybe through, um, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the various education processes that work within the court systems themselves, the chief judges, things of this sort. It has to be a combined effort at all levels of attorney training, education, and practice, law schools, mentoring, uh, in the courts themselves. And a little bit of effort along those lines, I think, will go a long way. won't solve it completely because lawyers are, 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 are good at what they do and they're clever at making it look like it's the other side's fault. But a little bit of diligence, a little bit of further education, I think, can move the needle on this uh, or at least uh, keep it from getting worse, you know, the so-called containment fallacy, right, which is as, maybe as important as anything else. Yeah. And um, speaking of education, so I, I think law schools have sort of moved towards, you know, practical skills training and letting, you know, telling law students, well, when you come out, you're going to be very well prepared. You're going to have all of this, all of the this training, you're going to know exactly what to do when you, you know, step into a courtroom for the first time, which is great. But then sometimes the overall philosophy of being a lawyer and what that means in terms of, you know, being an officer of the court, serving the public, some of that I think may get lost uh, because you're kind of focused on, you know, your day-to-day task as, as opposed to kind of, you know, who you are as a person and, and what your role is in, in society. I absolutely agree with this. Now, I'm a philosophy professor, so I have a tendency to go in this direction to begin with. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I really think that part of the problem in the law schools, in, in more than one area, is that they've gotten tired of some of the, you know, sh- shall we say, a mom and apple pie truths that are really important for lawyering. I'm currently working on an article which, uh, you know, basically reminds everybody how the first day of law school, everybody was taught that what law school will do is uh, teach you to think like a lawyer. And I'm talking about why that's not true. And uh, it's not true in a very particular way, uh, which is that it's going to teach you to think uh, like an American lawyer. And American lawyers do things differently from lawyers around around the world. Now, that's a different problem, but but um, it would help people to understand what this actually means rather than it merely be recited as a principle that's stated, I think, for every law student on the first day of law school. Right? But then, you know, with respect to what we're talking about, that you're an officer of the court. What does that really mean? You know, what does that really mean? I, it's the, a very interesting topic. It's, of course, the answer to the question that I get asked all the time by my undergraduate students in philosophy class. How can you represent somebody who you know is guilty or whose opinions you don't uh, agree with or respect? And the easiest answer, of course, is to talk to them about what it means to be uh, an officer of the court. What what is the function of a lawyer in uh, within the legal system? And this has been, I, I think, 
not well understood or well taught and actually is uh, now part of some of the uh, political debates that are going on as to the roles that lawyers have played in various uh, various political matters. I like to say it, there should be no difference between what you're willing to say to the judge and what you're, will, you're willing to say to the public, for example. You've got to be able to say the same thing to both, right? Why? Because you're an officer of the court. And even if you're not standing in court, you've got to uphold the legal system. And you've got to continue to represent the legal system well in every context in which you're which uh, you appear. Taking it to the uh, to the meet and confer context, you've got to remember that when you walk into that meet and confer process, you are there to make the system work well. That's your first obligation. Your second obligation is to represent your client zealously within those bounds. But those are the bounds that, that set for you. And to explore all of this in law school, I think would be very, very valuable because uh, I think that professional ethics courses don't get the real attention that they need and deserve. And uh, they tend to be sort of the sidelight of what people do. Although now that the bar exam has a big uh, you know, element of that as well, you have to learn the rules. But what they really mean and how they work in practice, I think is something that law schools would really benefit from. The spirit of the law as opposed to or in addition to the letter of the law. I totally agree with that. So we're coming to the end of our time together, Rob. Um, wanted to get your final thoughts on uh, your best tips for lawyers preparing for our next meet and confer session. Well, I just want to reemphasize what I said previously, and it's true in all aspects of litigation. It's something that I preach like a mantra to all the younger lawyers that work with me. Keep your eyes on the ball. What is it that you are trying to accomplish? What's the goal? Um, and then work back from that goal. But recognize that the goal is one uh, that you should set that is reasonably within your means. And always keep that in mind. So when you're in the context of a meet and confer, what is your actual goal? What can you live with? right? What can you give up without giving up too much? What is the thing that is most important to you? And don't get caught up in the details um, of all the individual disputes, either emotionally or, uh, you, you know, intellectually. What you should be doing is thinking about, okay, when I walk out of here, am I going to have the one or two things that I most care about to make sure that, um, you know, that those are done? Am I going to get the documents that I uh, I want, can I, uh, can I, uh, you know, sort of hold back documents that I think are not appropriately part of this and that are going to lead to people going off in stray directions and things of that sort. You know, it's a pretty broad standard that we have to meet in terms of what, what is relevant to the matter. But, uh, you know, what is it that I really have in mind? And as I said, not get caught up too much in the details, let alone the emotional uh, the emotion, any kind of emotional spirit in the meet and confer session itself. Well, fantastic. Rob Shapiro, uh, you've given us a lot of food for thought. Uh, thank you for uh, all of your tips today. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Dave. It's been really wonderful. I appreciate it. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section's mental health and wellness task force. And I'd like to welcome back Dr. Diana Uchiyama to the show. Dr. Diana is a lawyer and licensed clinical psychologist and serves as the executive director of the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Diana. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for being on the show. And what is your tip for today? So today I wanted to talk about the holidays, the impending holidays, which many uh, look forward to, but there are 
others who do not look so forward to the holiday season. And so in order to acknowledge uh, all spectrums of how people interpret holiday events, I thought I could uh, talk about how to avoid like holiday blues and depression. Sometimes it exacerbates uh, a lot of problems, uh, including uh, more stringent and deep-seated depression. Part of it is because we set ourselves up to have unreasonable expectations about the holidays that oftentimes in the media it's portrayed as something uh, beautiful, harmonious, where families get together and embrace each other, accept each other for their differences. And that's not always the case. So we um, also have to recognize that many people's family lives have changed significantly since covid There's more than a million people who have died in this country alone. And so a lot of people find the holidays to exacerbate grief issues and maybe become more negative as a result of changes in the family dynamics. So what what I like to tell people all the time is to really make yourself a priority. First and foremost, that becomes really important. Try to stick to your regular routine as much as possible because we know that when we have regular routines, it, it insulates us from all sorts of problems, including a lack of sleep, a difficulty working, difficulty interacting with others. So I know that the holidays sometimes are uh, times where people drink in excess, eat in excess. But if we start out of the gate with the holidays thinking of moderation, then we may not have to be so excessive in our New Year's resolutions, which many people make and is a tradition in many households. But if we think moderation, we don't have to go to such extreme measures to kind of get back the tempo of our lives. Also, I like people to think of being realistic rather than idealistic about the holidays. We often think of the holidays as a romantic concept when oftentimes when we are placed back into some of our family situations, it can exacerbate or increase stress, depression, and anxiety issues. And if your family is not a healthy family, I say all the time that we can seek support and friendship from other relationships as well. There are many people who often have holidays with people who are not their family members because it's healthier for them. We have to remember that there's many people in recovery, and in the recovery community, we make each person the priority in their own life, and we limit things that can derail them. And so if family is a exacerbating uh, problem in your realistic outlook during the holidays, then you might have to limit interactions with your family members and think of creative ways to engage with them without causing harm to yourself. And I like to also tell people that in in creating social connections with people who uh, help us maintain health and wellness, we have to throw guilt out of the window. We have to recognize that sometimes prioritizing our needs is just as important as the needs of others. You don't have to be alone if you don't want to. You can seek social connections through volunteer opportunities, through other means in which you can get a connection through other resources. 
the other thing is sometimes it's good to say no to things, right? Uh, I sometimes get overwhelmed with how many things come at me during the holiday season, and I have to prioritize them. I can't be everywhere all the time, and I would encourage you to do the same. I want you to say yes if you do it with joy and happiness and say no when you will only do it and feel anger and resentment as a result. So if you feel that you can't stay on track during the holidays, you need to seek help. You need to ask for help. You can reach out to a lap in your community, in your state, but to suffer in silence is not the answer because in isolation, that's when bad things can happen to people. That's when excessive behaviors can take place. That's when depression can get worse. And we want to create a community in which people feel safe, whether it's your family or not. So to remember what's important in your life, to engage in healthy conversations with people, uh, volunteer if you can, if that is something that's important to you. And then always, always, always know that seeking supportive services, if you can't manage the holidays on your own, is critical. Well, terrific, Dr. Diana. Thanks so much for being on the show. And thanks for bringing uh, those important tips to the table. Thank you. And I wish everyone a happy holiday in whatever fashion or form that works for you. Absolutely. Well, that's all we have for our show today. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at young without the hyphen at gmail.com and connect with me on social. I'm at Attorney DSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Environmental and Energy, Mass Torts, and Products Liability Litigation Committee's Joint Regional CLE Program in Avon, Colorado. That's February 1st through the 3rd. Uh, this program will, will feature 10 presentations on hot litigation topics, including committee-specific substance, broader litigation interests, and of course, ethics. And in addition to an agenda of diverse educational and entertaining programs, there's going to be lots of time to enjoy outdoor activities and network with colleagues. To find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash joint CLE. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify Podcasts, it's super helpful as well. And finally, I just want to quickly thank some folks who make the show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.